Father, this day we acknowledge that if it was not for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the beauty of your face would be yet obscured to us. It would be, Lord, not the glory of your creation, nor the holiness revealed in your word, the knowledge of ourselves as sinners in Christ as our Savior that we would see, but only the blindness of our sin and idols that would obscure the true and the beautiful, the powerful, the lovely, that which is of good report, your glory, your majesty, your dominion and authority. Yet for those whose eyes are open, we have not ourselves to credit, but only Christ alone. We come to this assembly, Lord, clothed in the righteousness of Christ for those that know you. We are not presentable of ourselves. Lord, we should not be here on our own merits. We do not deserve to be among the saints, nor at your table. But because of the work of Jesus Christ dying in our place and presenting to us his righteousness credited to our account, we come, Lord, thankful that you have made a way for our sins to be atoned, for righteousness to be imputed for us, for us to be in good standing with you based on the work of our Savior. Now we embrace you and love you and seek to grow in the knowledge of our faith and obedience to the same. So I pray as we open the scriptures today that you would open our hearts to receive them that they would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path to walk in your way. And at your table this day, would you impress more deeply still upon our souls the majesty of Christ in giving his own life, shedding his own blood to save his own, who we are by grace through faith in his holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great privilege and honor it is to gather in the name of Jesus to open up the Holy Scriptures and to assemble at His table later. Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, will be followed by more feasting still as we celebrate the glorious reconciliation that is offered to those who are in Christ through the blood and the body of our Lord and Savior. In our sermon series on Communion Sundays, we're exploring the book of Jude, and this leads us to two verses today we'll consider in our sermon. So turn as you're able to Jude, verses 12 and 13. The title of this morning's message is Enemy Illustrations. Jude employs six illustrations to illustrate gospel enemies, those who we are called to discern and oppose both people and ideas. The aim of this morning's message is to feast in the fear of the Lord, upon beholding his word to feast in the fear of the lord upon beholding his word which is appropriate today as we have our fellowship meal following the lord's table itself this idea was called a love feast in the early days of the church and jude makes passing reference to this he also draws a contrast to those that belong at that love feast and those that don't and it's for the purposes of greater application Suffice it to say, the gospel makes all the difference to render us acceptable, to render us worthy of gathering at the Lord's table. Who deserves to be there and who should be shunned is all based on those who have been made holy and have received the privileged invitation upon the work of Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind as we stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God. So would you stand as you're able today and let us hear these two verses as we explore them in greater depth praying that Christ would open our eyes to behold His Word. Here is the infallible Scriptures, Jude 10, 12, and 13. These are hidden reefs on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. 
waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the glory of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Jude, in admonishing the church of all ages, writes to equip his sincere readers to, the, to contend for the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints. Review and reminder. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our com common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once-for-all delivered to the saints. Jude makes it clear that he writes about the gospel for two reasons. One, it's such a joyous, joyous and glorious topic for us to behold. Two, it is something that we must fight for, and if we are not vigilant, can be threatened by enemies. Who are these enemies? Well, let me touch upon another verse that describes them in, or two verses that describes them in two ways, scoffers and worldly people, verses 18 and 19. Jude writes here, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Scoffers following worldly passions, worldly people, those that follow the way of Balaam, Cain, and Korah, or waterless clouds, fruitless trees, selfish shepherds, hidden reefs, and so forth, different ways of describing enemies of our faith. So Jude spends some time on this. His brief letter, in the, in the case of this short epistle, Jude's book of the Bible, nevertheless contains thorough training. I submit, for the believer to discern and oppose enemies of the gospel, understand who they are, and to stand against them. The scope of what we are to stand against as the Christian church includes anything or anyone that would deny or diminish what we have identified as the closing kind of crescendo of the book, the doxology. We are called to stand against anything that would diminish or uh, deny the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ. To help us identify the enemy, in our last message, Jude employed three cautionary tales or warning stories. And just a bit of review, he says that those who are false teachers, enemies of the faith, scoffers and worldly people, they are those who follow the way of Cain, verse 11, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So three cautionary tales to illustrate and to therefore help us discern and oppose enemies of the gospel. They, are, they live or act or follow the way of Cain, uh, Balaam's error, as well as Korah's rebellion. So adding to this, we come to our passage today. Our passage further illustrates by use of six analogies. Jude compares these scoffers and worldly people in verses or uh, in verses 12 and 13 to hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, waves, and wandering stars. Let me just give you a, a word on the use or a illustration about the rhetoric or the poetic device, the, uh, the use of a language in this case. It strikes me that we were learning about this in homeschooling recently. I was going over some logic with Justice, and 
He, the book he's using is called The Fallacy Detective, and it goes through different uses of rhetoric and where they're sound and unsound. And one of the devices that is used in language that we covered this week is called analogy. And the book uh, describes the difference, draws a distinction between what's called maybe a scientific analogy and a poetic analogy. So a scientific analogy uses a list of similar items to strengthen your case. It's like, therefore, if all of these are X, then Y should be X as well. But a poetic analogy is a little different. It references something that's similar to make a point. And I suggest Jude gives us six textbook analogies. He uses comparisons as a literary device to illustrate point. Jude uses six perfect poetic analogies in verses 12 and 13 to relay the danger and character. You could write that down. The danger and character of wolves in sheep's clothing, of scoffers and worldly people, enemies of the gospel, those who are hiding in the assembly of the believers, yet do not belong at the love feast, if you will, of the Lord. So here in Jude's letter, we learn their true character, and he reveals it helpfully by using these comparisons, and thus we learn why they are so out of place in the fellowship of the saints, or at the love feast, the communion table of the Lord. So let me give you a heading, and we'll explore these comparisons in some detail, I hope. Six analogies revealing enemies of the Christian faith as, number one, deceptive, number two, unprofitable, and number three, misleading. So what I've done is just taken those six analogies and divided them into groups of two. The first two primarily illustrating deception, hidden reefs, selfish shepherds. The second two primarily illustrating unprofitability, waterless clouds, fruitless trees. And then the third set of two, wild waves, wandering stars, illustrating their misleading nature. Six analogies revealing the enemies of the Christian faith as deceptive, First, they are like hidden reefs. Verse 12, these hidden reefs on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. What is meant by this analogy? Well, I don't know what your translation reads, but it may read the way mine does. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast without fear. Sometimes I'll be studying with the ESV on my phone version, and then I'll go back to my paper version and there's a discrepancy. Well, this is merely because as a translation committee develops and works through the material, sometimes there are updates, and I think what we see here is the difference between the 2005 and the 2008 version. And the updates are intended to reflect a closer or more precise reading based on extra information or something the prior committee may have overlooked. So you look at the original word there, spilos in the Greek. If you go to interlinear, you'll find the literal translation is, quote, a ledge of rock over which the sea dashes. So therefore, I think it's appropriate to use this term by translation, hidden reefs. These, these enemies of the gospel, are hidden reefs on your love feast. Surfing can be dangerous, to expand the illustration for our benefit today. One of the reasons why is what causes those swells to rise up and the wave to take the shape? Well, oftentimes it's what's underneath the surface, they tell me. So coral reefs or outcroppings of rock can sometimes cause the shape of the sea as it approaches the land to rise and to curl and so forth and create, in some cases, pretty ideal waves for surfing. But this is also extremely dangerous, as you might imagine. That wave that rises up after uh, hitting that hidden reef can smash you upon the rocks if you're not careful. Likewise, you might be familiar with stories of ships. Everyone knows the Titanic. 
there was just a little bit of ice and an iceberg, let's say, visible on the surface, yet underneath is a hidden obstruction. Reefs are that way. An outcropping of rock underneath the surface can be the end of a ship as the hull dashes into this stone that's hidden and unseen, crashes through the hull, and then the vessel sinks. This is what a hidden reef is, a ledge of rock under which the sea da- over which the sea dashes. It represents, therefore, deceptive danger. Hidden obstacles, plants from the enemy, set there or placed there to ambush the body of Christ, to seek in this way to co-opt the glory of Jesus. For example, Demas was a colleague of Paul. We'll touch upon an example or two through the course of this text of actual individuals or ideas that fell into these categories. Paul uh, sends greetings to the church. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but you could turn in advance to 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul writes to the church in two prior places, or in Colossians 4.14 and Philippians 1.24, sending greetings to the beloved body of Christ in these outlying regions. And he includes a name in his greeting, namely Demas. He says, Demas greets you as well. But as it turns out, it would appear in the course of Paul's ministry, and as the fruit of following these individuals begins to make itself known, Demas was indeed a hidden reef. And 2 Timothy 4.10, verse 9, Paul says this, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Cretans has gone to uh, Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. From time to time in the course of Paul's labors, this would happen. An individual who aligns himself with the work of Paul for a period of time demonstrates that he does not have the character or the endurance. And because of other competing interests and motives, in Demas' case, love of this present age, this world, caused him under pressure when the test came to desert Paul. Do people desert Paul today? Insofar as Paul was anointed by the Holy Spirit to write down the uncompromised word of truth, and he was extremely gifted to do so, there are many hidden reefs today. Individuals who claim to be influential theologians, churchmen, and so forth, who will cast shade on Paul. We're calling to question certain things that he has written. Why? Because, like Demas, in many cases, they're in love with the present world. And if the present world says that Christian love requires you to accept anybody on their own terms these days, when Paul speaks clearly about the perversion of homosexuality, they may leave Paul for this present world. Who are they? They are hidden reefs. They are deceptive and dangerous individuals. They are ideas or people who are placed there to ambush the body of Christ. We need to understand that with those who question the word of that those who question the word of God, as they make themselves known need to be called out. We need to put a buoy there, a marker, so that the church does not collapse upon the reef. Now, as love feasts, or what is a love feast? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we're not used to that language. We're used to terms like the Lord's Table or communion most commonly referenced here. But love feast is very similar. It's exactly as you might imagine. An occasion to celebrate over a feast, which is significant. It's a meal of covenant significance that we express the fellowship gained by our common belief and common experience. So in Christ, having saved us and redeemed us, we have that common experience of salvation, which gives us reason to assemble and to gather. 
Every time we are in the Lord's, uh, in the Lord's house together as his blood-bought saints, we're feasting as it were. If not of actual food, which we will have today, well then certainly of the bread of life that is found in his word. And we, thus we grow in deeper appreciation of the Lord and our love for him. And we are bound together in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and greater love for one another. So a love feast is a great term. These are hidden wreaths on your love feast as a feast with you without fear. Today we gather for a meal following the early church's model of fellowship. And uh, as, as we do so, the, the Lord's table, table and what we uh, call pot providence after, the goal and the effect of this is to build and to nurture the bonds of Christian family love between ourselves and ultimately to the Lord. So therefore, if there are people out of place or if there are ideas that are out of place at a love feast, what would they be? Insurgent enemies that would seek to undermine Christian unity and Christian love, to throw into confusion and disorder the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and the unified confession of Christ alone as Lord. These would be the hidden wreaths that might seek to threaten the church today. Paul further uses or goes on to use a similar analogy in 1 Timothy 1 of shipwreck with respect to the faith. So turn there with me if you would. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Paul writing again, warning uh, Timothy, a young and growing leader in the church, so that his church and the work of Christ might stand strong through him and in his area, his gospel outpost. He says, holding faith and a good conscience, I should back up, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about, about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." Similar warnings as Jude. The unified testimony of the New Testament calls our attention to analyze the character and the danger of the hidden wreaths at the love feast. Those who are not sincerely following Christ, but seek for selfish gain to capitalize on the institutional church. And in so doing, they present a real obstacle to ambush the work of the gospel. And if people were to follow them, they themselves could uh, suffer shipwreck just like a boat is threatened by that unseen uh, uh, rock outcropping over which the sea dashes, that hidden reef. Paul, or, uh, Jude further describes these individuals as those who feast without fear. Now, we've talked a, a quite a bit about uh, fear lately in the context of the changing heart of Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers later assemble uh, if you read beyond in Genesis 42 is where we're at, but you keep reading, they later assemble at a feast with Joseph himself. But they assemble in fear, as it were. They realize that they are at that feast not because they deserve it or have earned it or have a right to be there, but instead by some curious set of circumstances, the Lord of the land has extended them invitation to table. But they're shaking in their boots. They realize their sin. They've confessed as much already in Psalm 42. They presume they deserve the judgment of God, not feasting at his table. So there's this weighty sense of undeservedness, except for the grace of God, that we should maintain 
when we come to the, quote, communion table or, quote, love feast of the Lord. But those who are hidden reefs, those who are presumptuous, those who care nothing of the gospel, but instead exploit the institutional church for other means, they feast without fear. So what is a feast that's represent, or what is fearful, if you will, about a feast or significant about it uh, represented even in the Lord's communion table today? Well, as Jude contrasts the citizens of Sodom with true believers, I think we can find some inference and some light on this as well. There were those, as we've mentioned before, who received the reckoning angels with fear. That would be Abram, Abraham, and Lot at the time. And Abraham and Lot had the same godly response to these heavenly emissaries, these who represented a delegated agency of justice and authority. And they said, come to my table, sit down. And they entertained them, they served them, and with fear they spread a meal before them, attended to their needs, called them Lord, deferred to their authority. The citizens of Sodom, though, know such fear. Angels themselves visit the city, and they're announcing that unless you run away and escape, in, a few, in just a matter of hours, it will be destroyed. But the citizens of Sodom, did they feast at Lot's table with these angels in fear? No, they had no fear. In fact, they sought in their wicked depravity and their pathological sin and their narcissistic rebellion and their absolute perverse and decrepit behavior and their reprobate minds and actions to violate these angels and celebrate their lust and their homosexual sin with a new crop of individuals who had just visited. This is a dramatic picture of the opposite between those who feast at the Lord's table in fear and those who embrace every life opportunity for selfish gain. And this is what Jude is warning against. Those who do not come to the Lord's table recognizing their own sin and they don't deserve it. But by the grace of God and the shed blood of Christ, they did not deserve to be in the fellowship of the beloved. Those who do not maintain that attitude are dangerous. They need the gospel. They need to be convicted of their sin. They need to receive the presumption of judgment. The weight of their violation of God's holy law and what that deserves should be made known to them that they might repent and join us in right heart and right understanding and right attitude and leave behind the presumptuous sin and have a dramatic life course correction as they repent before a holy and a righteous and a wrath-filled God who is willing to pour that wrath out on Christ. But we must accept it and we must bow before. That is our only hope of salvation. So consider this, even in light of our fellowship meal today, Hidden Reefs, Selfish shepherds. More than hidden reefs, the second analogy, selfish shepherds. As they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, or shepherds feeding themselves. And once again, the uh, translation is a little more precise with shepherds feeding. I, because some versions read differently on this point as well. I went back to the original language, and the Greek word there indicates to act as a shepherd, to tend, to herd to rule, or to govern. So the word itself intrinsically carries that illustration of shepherd. This is an important correction, I think, and an important um, translation as well to use the term shepherds feeding themselves because Jude, no doubt, is alluding to an important passage from the Old Testament. Turn there with me if you would, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel identifies... The prophet identifies a perennial problem among the covenant people of God. 
that there will be those we must watch out for, shepherds who serve themselves rather than the cause of Christ, rather than the gospel. He identifies this issue with poetic language, Ezekiel does, by speaking of these shepherds, and they're exploiting the sheep, taking advantage of the situation, and thus doing harm. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 1, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherd feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. He goes on to describe that the Lord himself will take control of the situation. He himself will shepherd his people. So this is an issue that the prophet faced then and is also an issue in Jude's day and ours as well. That there are those hidden reefs and selfish shepherds who exploit the opportunity of the church, the institutional church, to do harm to others in order to feed themselves, to take advantage of the situation for personal gain. Jesus is the perfect opposite to this. He, in fact, is the good shepherd. He is the perfect example of self-denying sacrifice in the cause of the decree, the command, and the call of the Father. Jesus, the preeminent model of shepherding, we don't have time to turn there, but in John 10, I am the shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus talks about being the door. Anyone who seeks to go in is a thief and a robber. In other words, anyone that counts himself in uh, unity of purpose with Christ must tend to his flock his way, which means that we don't look to exploit the opportunities for personal gain, but instead Look for ways to do what Christ did, to lay down ourselves, to count it a joy, to encourage others, to use what he has given us to be a blessing to the church, to give even out of our lack to the cause of Christ overseas. Even things you know, that we've been planning of late, like this uh, fundraiser banquet, is a great opportunity for us to model Christ-like shepherding. Though we are not a church of a lot of means, we certainly don't have you know, full-time staff and abundant, you know, uh, resources. Nevertheless, it is right for us to look for opportunities to sow into the work, even uh, if it costs us something here. This is what godly shepherds do. How will you know uh, if someone is a hireling or a robber? They're the ones who come in a different way and over time reveal themselves as self-serving. I've received a some wise counsel early on in ministry. And the question was raised, how do you know you're not a hireling or a robber? Well, one answer is, is would you do it for free? And that's a good question that ministers in my situation should always ask sincerely of themselves. Is the reward of serving Jesus enough in and of itself that we would do it even if it wasn't our vocation? This is what an unselfish shepherd is called to do course in American culture and you know we used to call it 
the Disneyland of evangelicalism down in the uh, southern areas. And when I was in college, I had less theological understanding then, but enough discernment to, to realize that many of those who called themselves pastors and uh, evangelists were doing things for selfish gain. And in the history of Christianity and modern times or so-called, uh, it has even become popular to recast and to manipulate and twist the Bible in certain ways so that financial gain, profit for the individual is actually a theological tenet of what they preach. You know, extreme error in the case of word of faith ministries and so forth comes to mind. We have so many examples of this. I trust that you have the discernment to see them as well. But go to the word of God. Passages like Ezekiel 34, Jude as well, to strengthen your discernment and understanding. So if, they, if you know someone who is caught or deceived in some of these misleading ideas, that you can bring them to the knowledge of the truth, lest they suffer, sh suffer shipwreck on the hidden reefs of the enemies of the gospel. Major point number two, analogies revealing Christ's enemies not just as deceptive, but secondly as unprofitable, fruitless, waterless. And as we continue in verse 12, there are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead. Waterless clouds and fruitless trees. Waterless clouds. They hold out hope for nourishing rain, only to disappoint. They have the appearance of legitimacy at first glance, but they prove empty of substance in time. This would be the poetic analogy explained, at least in part. Think about the time of Elijah. And there was a great famine on the land as judgment of God because the people were idol worshipers. And in this, Joel mentioned this actually in morning prayer today, there comes this sort of, um, every, comes a boiling point, if you will, a showdown on Mount Carmel. Kids, you remember this? There's like two sides. There's the worshipers of Baal, and then who's on the other side opposing them? Just one guy. You guys remember who it is? Moses, not Moses. So we're on Mount Carmel, we've got the worshipers of Baal versus a prophet named Elijah is correct. Thank you. Elijah serves the one true God and the rest of the society, by and large, save a small remnant, has, you know, uh, fallen into idolatry and pagan worship. And so I imagine as hours and hours pass and these guys are trying, the pagan, the worshipers of Baal are trying to get, you know, the God, their false gods to call down fire from heaven. They're kicking up dust, and you see this cloud of dust. So imagine you're at the foot of the mountain, and you're suffering this great drought, and you're hoping for rain. And on the top of this mountain, you see this cloud forming. And so you begin to be encouraged, and oh, perhaps today it will rain upon our parched fields. But little do you realize, or maybe you go a little closer and find out, that that dust is nothing more than the dry and arid landscape kicked up because these idol worshipers, the prophets of Baal, are dancing, cavorting, and carrying on around their altar to the false god. That would be a waterless cloud, a dust cloud, if you will, kicked up by the feet of idol worshipers doing a rain dance to the pagan idols. Holding out hope for nourishing rain? I don't think so. Only disappointing, first having the appearance of hope, but on second glance, proven to be of no substance. Meanwhile, what happens on the other side of things? The true prophet of God, Elijah, he prays to the one true God, and yes, fire falls down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice and the precious water. He's poured all around it. And shortly thereafter, he's in prayer once again, and he says to his servant, go look on the horizon. What does he see? 
a cloud the size of a man's hand. And this is a legitimate water-filled cloud, and soon the sky grows dark as more and more of the uh, heavenlies is gathered in, in obedience to the Lord, and then they break forth in rain. And it's, you can barely outrun, the chariots can barely outrun the uh, water as it falls and everything else as, uh, as the land fills up with the, glorious, uh, uh, with the glorious waters of heaven pouring down at God's will according to the prayers of his true servant. So it's just an illustration of the Old Testament of the difference between waterless clouds and those which actually bring that life-saving rain. These clouds are not just waterless, they're also windswept. Waterless clouds swept by winds. Think of the motives and situations that move these hidden reefs, these selfish shepherds, to appear. These motives can just as easily move them on. They would just as readily sweep them away. These whims of self-surfing opportunism bring trends that come and go into the church and things that people are excited about and certain individuals that rise to promise and then rise to prominence and then fade. But over time, you can start to discern that many of these things are just windswept clouds. I pray and I, I know that if we as a church endure the test of time, it will only be because we stay close to the substance and the meat and the milk of the gospel and the word of God. There are so many tempting things that come in the form of best-selling books and ideas and concepts and certain individuals and celebrities and trends that come across the landscape of the evangelical church in the West with the relative freedom we now enjoy. But over time, they prove to be sort of empty. A lot of times they collapse in scandal. They blow over in what remains. The truth of God's word, which never withers, never fails, and never fades. Pray that the Lord would give us, pray that the Lord would give you the deepest desire and an appetite for that which is most healthy for your soul. We need to pray just like in your physical diet. You know, if all you eat is junk food and cotton candy all the time, your sweet tooth corrupts, is, is out of sync with what your body actually needs. And in order for your, for your health's sake, your physical health's sake, you need to retrain your appetite and your palate to crave and to appreciate and consume that which is beneficial to you. Spiritually, it's the same. The cotton candy of evangelical trends can lead to tooth decay over time, to use another analogy. But we need to have an appetite for that which is of substance and merit legitimately grounded in the Word of God, that we may never grow tired of the gospel, that every time we come to the Lord's table, the bread and the cup are all the sweeter to our tongue, realizing that the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary is as true and as powerful today as it was the moment we confessed our sin and believed in Him, and that hope of salvation in Christ alone will survive every other claim to the contrary, and in the end, it will separate. The knowledge of Christ alone will separate the sheep from the goats and will cast the goats into everlasting fire, as Jude says, utter darkness. Meanwhile, those who are content to feed upon the tried and true word and gospel of Jesus Christ will enter into glorious fellowship and communion at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb forever enjoying the sweetness of fellowship and the joy of worship for which we were created forever without end. So we need to pray that the Lord would give a sour taste in our mouth for the waterless clouds, but a true desire and appreciation for the fruitful. Waterless clouds swept by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted. I love this poetic language, so great. 
Makes me want to write a song. Fruitless trees, twice dead. Strengthened, uh, Jude strengthens the metaphor for effect. There are two reasons why the tree is fruitless in this analogy. The first is that it's past the season of harvest. The second is the whole thing has been pulled up from the ground entirely. That is, it has no intrinsic source of vitality. It's not rooted in the ground anymore. It's been uh, pulled up. And it's not even in the right season. Thus, it's absolutely hopeless. Even if you wait a year, it still will not produce fruit. Fruitless trees, twice dead. Not just the death of winter, but the death uh, intrinsically as well, having no a source of life. What is the source of life uh, that we cling to and does actually produce fruit in the kingdom of God? I can't resist this contrast. Turn with me to John 15. I'm sure you're familiar with this text. It's a beloved passage and for a good reason. And who are those who bear fruit in the kingdom? Jesus describes them as those who abide in the vine, as it were. And he uses another analogy, himself and the vine, and the connectedness to describe these conditions. Verse 1, I am the vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He goes on like this to expand that analogy. Spend some time there this week to really get a sense, I suggest, of what Jude gets at when he says, by contrast, those who don't abide in Christ, those who aren't planted in his truth and in his word, they are like waterless clouds, shepherds feeding themselves, hidden reefs, and fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. This leads us to major point number three, six analogies revealing enemies of the Christian faith as number one, deceptive. That's our hidden reefs, selfish shepherds. Number two, we just covered unprofitable, waterless clouds, fruitless trees. This leads us to three, enemies of the cross are misleading. They are like wild waves and wandering stars. 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Think of a seafarer, an ocean-going vessel, especially in olden times, without the aid of GPS and sophisticated maps. So we were looking at the sky, the nice sky, trying to find the North Star the other night. And what is the value of the North Star? Well, it's a fixed point of reference. So wherever you are, as long as you can see the sky, you can tell what direction you're at. So think of this. Wandering stars, no fixed point in the heavens, and upon the waves, wild waves that move you all over the place. I can't imagine a circumstance where you would be more utterly lost, absolutely turned around. It's night, it's dark, it's vessel, not a speck of land in sight. No birds flying over to give you a direction of where you might go. Just the night sky full of stars just moving around chaotically, wandering, and then the waves themselves blowing you to and fro. This is the picture of utter lostness without the fixed point of the Word of God and the Gospel to set you according to the North Star of God's righteousness. Now those who 
are enemies of the gospel. They do not have these fixed points. They are like those very waves that blow back and forth, constantly changing, fickle, not to be counted on, chaotic, dangerous, unpredictable, going with the spirit of the age or the whims of the hour. They are the opposite of what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, after gloriously expounding on the resurrection and ascension and the implications of the work of Jesus Christ upon this rock of his teaching, he then prays for the church to be steadfast, immovable, and therefore always abounding in the work of the Lord. Enemies of the gospel are the opposite. They're like ocean waves, chaotic, dangerous, and unpredictable. They're not abounding in the work of the Lord because they aren't steadfast and they're always moving about. They're uh, moving like, and wild waves just on the ocean moves ships off course. So if we listen to the ideas of the moment that aren't rooted and grounded and the forever word of God, they too will steer us uh, uh, astray and so forth. These are potentially threatening to the integrity of the vessel. These wild waves could blow us upon a hidden reef, combining a couple of the pictures. And there is foam as well. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Paul even uses the scum that you sometimes see when water is agitated. Has anyone ever been, well, maybe you didn't want to go in it, but sometimes in a, a public area like a hotel or something, there'll be a hot tub and it's just got that scum on top. And you're like, should I go in? Should I not go in? Ah, maybe not. Why? Because the agitation of the waters just kicked up this scum on the surface, right? And so this is the picture here. These wild waves have this foam, this shame foam in the place of fruit is scum. They produce something, but it's of no value. What do they produce? Well, drawing on the context, we could go back, back to verse 8. In like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This is the scum of the wild waves, those who reject the uh, immutability and the sufficiency of the word of God. There are those who are caught in Cain's way, Balaam's error, and Korah's rebellion. They rely on their dreams, that is, they embrace subjective experience as their point of reference. And they do not fear and marvel at the Lord, but rely on things that are suggested just subjectively to them. They defile the flesh. They embrace sexual perversion. They revisit ethics and morals according to the whims and preferences of the hour, rather than referencing everything according to the fixed star of God's unchanging word. They reject authority. They despise the truth. They don't believe there is a sovereign in heaven and on earth. But they imagine that everything just came about by process, an undirected system of, of events. So even in their so-called scientific hypotheses, they have room to reject a sovereign over them. One thinks of evolutionary theory as a great escape clause, the unbeliever thinks, of the accountability he, share, he has before a sovereign creator. They blaspheme the glorious ones, and they disclaim their authority, even to the point of violating angels, if they could, in the case of the citizens of Lot's, of, of, uh, and the citizens of uh, Lot's city there in Sodom and so forth. So this is the picture of wild waves. Wild waves kicking up that shame foam and the scum 
of their own subjective experience, perversion, and rebellion, desecrating the holy in their wickedness and opposition against the truth of God's word. This language is very similar, by the way, and we might explore this more at a different time, to 2 Peter. 2 Peter uses very similar language, this utter darkness that has been reserved for them forever. And I think we see why, the, or one of the connections between the two books in verse 17, Jude says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people. In other words, just to make the point that Jude is not alone in his condemnation, but he joins the voice of the other apostles, including Peter, in very similar language. So this testimony is unified across Scripture to reveal to us the nature and the danger of the enemies of the faith. So this last analogy, this illustration, is wandering stars. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So departing from the fixed place of God's created order, they lose their point of reference and their moral standing, and no one ought to look to them for direction. The heavens were created for a particular purpose, and that illustration is carried all the way through Scripture. By the heavens, at the movement of the heavenly bodies, by the sun which shines by day, the moon by night, and the, season, er, and the constellations which uh, order themselves in a precise pattern according to the seasons, man is to mark seed time and harvest, is to mark day and to mark night, and to chart time and so forth. So the heavens, by God's created intent, are a fixed point of reference, and thus they serve well as an analogy. You know, there was a star that guided uh, the wise men, of course, to Jesus, There's a fixed point, as it were, in this illustration of something prophesied and a marker whereby they could set their course. Of course, the heavens through the ages, as we said before, have been used for directions so we can get our bearings and tell where we are. Morally, the Word of God is like this. It is our North Star that tells us right from wrong, righteousness from wickedness, justice from injustice. But if you depart from the Word of God and the Gospel as your fixed point, you replace it with something else. But what will it be? It will be a wandering star, not a fixed point, something subject to change. and Nothing but the gloom of utter darkness. And I suggest that here Jude is building on the analogy of heavenly bodies and their environment. Where are stars? Well, they're set in space, as it were, and there's that kind of impenetrable darkness around them. They are fixed points, but around them, the environment in which they rest is this kind of gloom of outer space, if you will. This impenetrable darkness of space illustrates the ultimate consequences of gospel opposition. So you either set your course by the stars or you're lost, utterly lost, is the picture. Now, these days, there's so many ways we can make an application on this point, but let me just choose one and then we can move on from there. Civil law, so laws which declare this is right, this is wrong, this is permissible, this is forbidden, in the body of our political life, do have an objective standard and measure. That would be the righteousness and the ethics and the morality of the Word of God. You shouldn't legislate morality. The short-sighted unbeliever tells us only a fool would say so. In truth, if you analyze law, every single law is an imposition of morality or procedural thereto. Therefore, civil law is a star of source 
of sorts. And so the question is, is it wandering or is it not? So recently, men in our state, have, and women as well, legislators, has ex have expressed their rebellion against law, God's law and order to uh, change the position and direction and to change the fixed point upon which we are to set our idea of justice and ethics. So we think of this expanded access to abortion in our land where it is legal and sanctioned and even encouraged. And, and so much so that, you know, just the uh, reasonable amendments offered by the political opposition have been thrown out, thrown out systematically. Here's a quote from a news story. More extreme bills introduced to the House and the Senate seek to strip away what abortion advocates call restrictions to abortion access, including 24-hour waiting period, parental notification for a minor seeking an abortion, the reporting requirement for women injured or killed during an abortion, the Born Alive Infant Act, which would remove the requirement that a baby be born alive during an abortion, attempt to be considered a human being, and the requirement of life-saving measures be taken. It also would require that abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy be done in a hospital by a physician, and would, nor in this new legislation, would, nor would it require licensure for abortion facilities. Civil laws to tell the truth on matters of justice and ethics, and laws like this pervert the fixed standard of God's moral order. The laws in our day and in our state, they are by design a rebellion against the holy. They are purposeful perversion and corruption of what God has laid down immutably in his word. Law, just like stars, are by divine design to be a teacher, to inform the moral invalid on the boundaries which establish a transgression of the law of God. But if we permit what God forbids, or if we require things that God, for, or that God uh, forbids and so forth, uh, if we turn on the head these categories, then what have we done? We've set ourselves up and our body of legislation as wandering stars. We've bastardized the truth in the name of euphemistic scum like women's rights or reproductive health. In our own state these days, these things are passing now because the wicked who rule us have decided they will not set their course by the word of God. May we tell the truth about these things. May we point out the North Star of God's righteousness and his word which never changes. May we look in our day at the chaotic situation and these waves, these wild waves casting up the scum of their own rebellion, these fruitless trees and waterless clouds. May we identify them personally in our own lives and may we see them socially in, in the society in which we live and may we call them out for what they are. Set a buoy on those hidden reef locations and say, enter at your own risk. Set your course by the North Star of Jesus Christ lest you be lost to utter darkness. Let me just give you one closing illustration. I wrote this little picture when I was thinking about the difference between setting our course by what God has decreed and the alternative. So imagine yourself, if you would, for a minute, looking in the window of a beautiful home full of rejoicing, feasting, all the joys of a blessed and loving extended family reunion. I think in my mind's eye of a Norman Rockwell painting and that table piled high and just the joyful expressions from the young all the way up to the elderly as this family gathers in celebration of all the blessings that God has poured out upon them. There's smiles, there's laughter, and nothing but heartwarming conversations expressed by everyone gathered sitting down to lavish table. 
towering with delicious food and plentiful desserts. But where are you? You're on the outside looking through the window. Your hand reaches out to let yourself in, but you just miss the handle of the front door by inches as you slowly drift further and further away into the weightlessness of dark outer space. The air supply in your spacesuit will soon be gone, and the inviting warm glow spilling from that dining room window is now just a pinpoint of light receding into the distance. This is kind of the picture of the love feast versus banishment to outer darkness that contrasts the consequences of those who fear the Lord and fellowship with the beloved based upon the North Star of the Word of God and those who are a law unto themselves and will be lost in utter judgment unless they repent. In closing, let's just read a few verses from Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 describes this love feast and encapsulates in glorious terms the reason for our celebration today and the joy that we share over table communion and fellowship after reminds us with of the fear and the reverence we should maintain as we approach the lord 1222 in the book of hebrews our author writes you have not come or you have come excuse me to mount zion and to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering festal of course adjective for feast a feast is in view. Angels are there assembled. And so are those who have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ. He goes on, 23, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the excuse me, spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the love feast that Jude describes. And if your heart has been changed by the gospel, and you approach the Lord in reverence and fear, knowing that your merit does not deserve it, if you are sincerely clinging to Christ as your hope and salvation, this is the joyful reunion that you have inside the home, as it were, in that picture, not the banishment to the outer space of whatever's popular these days, or that utter lostness that marks the way of those who refuse to bow before the fixed point of God's holy word. Today, if we come in the heart of the redeemed, we join the angels in sitting down at table before the Lord. And as we partake in these elements, it's an anticipation of a glorious meal to come. Christ is our sufficient source. It is upon him that we feed, so to speak. He is the provision unto eternal life. The huge question in John, our text, and Jude, excuse me, today is, do you belong here? Do you belong at the love feast, or are you a hidden reef? If you have repented and turned from your sins, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you staked your righteousness and your convictions according to His Word revealed in the pages of Scripture, then you belong. You are here enjoying the fellowship, reconciliation, and the joy of reunion with God Almighty at the love feast that Christ has purchased. To those invited to the table, table fellowship of the assembly of the Lord, there are those who are enrolled in heaven. There are those who have realized the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, crucified for their sins, resurrected for their justification, 
and ascended to rule as King and Lord. And so to Him and to Him alone, to Jesus Christ, and in the words of Jude, we ascribe glory, majesty, dominion, and authority this day. Let us pray in transition. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the message that it contains for us. If there are any within the hearing of these proclamations this day who have not bowed their knee and surrendered to You, Jesus Christ, the Sovereign Lord and Savior, I pray that You would move us in conviction and fear to cry out for Your mercy, grace, and forgiveness based upon Your work, taking the judgment our sin deserves, that we might join the assembly, Lord, in the white robes of Your righteousness, gathered in Your name to celebrate forever what You have done. In a day of darkness, full of hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds, and fruitless trees, may we shine in such a time, holding out the hope and direction of Jesus Christ, the true anchor and hope of our salvation. May we stand in spite of wild waves and wandering stars, pointing to Him who has shown us the way as He is the way, the truth, and the life. And all of this, may you be glorified. In your great name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.